From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. So, Chris, there are probably lots of things that you could talk about because you have so many different passions and interests. But what is the superpower that you would like to bring to this episode of Superpower School to share with the listeners? The superpower I would like to bring to this episode of Superpower School is philosophy. So philosophy is often viewed as an esoteric dusty aged topic where people sit around and smoke pipes and and think about the nature of reality and that kind of thing. And I think in in the past sort of maybe 50 years or so, it's it's definitely fallen by the wayside. It's definitely, it's often seen as as an art now rather than one of the sort of softer sciences. And it's certainly lost its importance and its sort of stature in society that it used to have. There was a time when people would interview philosophers to, to sort of just get a view on the situations of the day. If you want to go and look at a video of Bertrand Russell, for example, Bertrand Russell was doing the most esoteric philosophy ever. It was really, really, really niche. And reporters from mainstream media would go and film him and talk to him and be like, what is it you're working on? And he'd be like, oh, you know, I'm working on the structure of language from math- the philosophy of mathematics. And no one would have a clue what was going on. But everyone would kind of admire the act of philosophy. And that's all kind of gone now. The reason why I think philosophy is so, so important for software engineers is because it's something that Prince Philip said a long time ago, which was that Engineer, the, the future, the, the, the sort of architecture of our future is going to be defined by engineers. That is, they are, they are the people that are going to be pushing forward what, how, we, how we live, how we engage with each other, how we decide to, how we decide what a sort of authentic and fulfilled life is, is going to be fundamentally at least built by engineers. In, you know. So why do I think a philosophical education is important in that. I'll give you an example of social media. Social media is a, is a fundamentally technological endeavor. It's the, the engineering that went into that in the, in the early days was, was cutting edge and still is. You know, the, 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 the algorithms that they run there to sort of match content to people is phenomenally complicated and there's a whole industry trying to work them out to, to monetize them and optimize them. There's implications in, in the way these things are designed that have sort of far-reaching and very hidden consequences. There's a whole Kinefin framework, right? Where and the Kinefin framework is, is, a, is a complexity mapping tool to help you understand how complex a thing is. And it has four quadrants, I'm trying to remember them all now, but it's like simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic. And simple being really, really straightforward, uh, known best practice kind of stuff. Complicated is a bit more murky, but generally speaking, you know what to do. You know, it's not too hard. Complex is where it starts getting tricky and requires quite a bit of experimentation to try and work out what the next best step forward. Chaotic is really, really difficult to understand. And we're very much in the chaotic space with with these kinds of things. If if Twitter releases a new feature tomorrow, we have no idea what impact it's going to have on people. We have very little idea. We can, we can hope that it incentivizes certain behaviors, but we don't really know. And that's because there's so many variables and it's so difficult to understand. So my favorite example of this is, it's a, it's a cliche, actually. People describe social media as a kind of empty, vacuous experience sometimes, is that they look at, well, people's Instagrams are just sort of portraying a picture and they're portraying, you know, an, an idealized version of life. Um, and people would say when Facebook was being designed, well, who could have predicted that was going to happen? You know, no one could really predict that people would make money from essentially glamorizing very small slivers of their life and hiding other elements of it. People were more worried about things like ad revenue 
than they were about anything else. But people can monetize their Instagram profiles now and all they have to do is wear nice watches, drive nice cars, you know, go off on, 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 on glamorous holidays and things. A philosophical training would have would have told you so that there's a philosopher called Guy Debord who was writing in the 60s, well before, you know, computers were even a, a mainstream concept, well before uh, social media was even a thing. Guy Debord wrote, wrote a book called The Society of the Spectacle, which is all about how as a society we're moving from being a kind of society that values just having things, so just the accumulation of wealth, to the appearance of having. And just that piece of philosophy right there would have easily predicted the direction that social media was going. Right? Just, just knowing that and knowing that we are, we are in the midst of that transition from, from it being valuable. To, you know, The reason why people used to wear gold, for example, it wasn't because they wanted to appear to have gold. It was because the gold itself had value. This thing is, is worth lots and lots of money. You see me wearing it and that attributes social value to me, but also it kind of maintains the order of things. So what people usually do is they say things like kings and queens. Long, long time ago, they would have diamonds and, and gold and things like that in their robes and their jewelry. And why do they do that? Because they wanted to appear to do that. And therefore we've always been an appearance-based sort of economy. It's always been an appearance-based society, but not necessarily. They would wear that for a purpose. And the purpose was to maintain social order. Look how glamorous we are. Look how high up we are. And that would help them to rule essentially it was it, it had a function but it wasn't the end the, the, the sort of appearance wasn't the end it was the means to an end the end was control and power whereas now uh, someone has an instagram profile the appearance is the end it's the whole point and the really really scary thing about this is that um these people are doing it for money some of these people are doing it for money you know they, they have this appearance they drive cars and do things and set trends for money but what people do is they make their instagram profiles for example or Facebook or whatever social media to match these people. But these people aren't making any money out of it. And so they've completely internalized the idea of appearing to be wealthy even when they're not. And they're not making any money. The appearance is the ends in and of. This is a whole complex web of social sort of interaction, right? But it was very, very elegantly predicted by Guy Debord, you know, in, in, in the 60s. And a, a more rigorous philosophical training might have given us some, oh, we're going in that direction. Oh, okay, right. Maybe there's, maybe there's some things we can do here to try disincentivize that kind of behavior because we all know that the unrealistic standards that are set by social media have like very far reaching and very, very damaging effects to especially young people, especially young people actually. So, so that's just one example where a sort of philosophical training might have averted what we've got right now. But more so, if this is where we are right now, where are we headed? What's next? You know, Elon Musk just bought Twitter. What does that mean? You know, and he's bought it under the under the banner of freedom of, but that in and of itself is a philosophical concept, right? And, and in order to be able to divorce freedom of speech away from the politicized version of it that we have right now, we need some philosophical training so we can actually understand the history of that idea, the idea of individual liberty and why that is such a good idea and so on and so on and so on. So as a field, as, as, as a collective, we keep bumping into philosophical problems, but we aren't aware that we're bumping into them and we think we're solving new issues when we're really not. We're just making the same old mistakes over and over and over again. So that is why, as a very long-winded explanation, I apologize for that, why I believe philosophy is so important to um, modern software engineering and why software engineers should have a decent grasp of it, at the very least. No, it's really interesting because honestly, when you first told me about it, I never heard of such a thing, philosophy for tech. Why do we need that? But now how, you, how you've explained it, it seems like, whoa, we really need this for where we're heading. I'm glad I'm uh, selling it, yeah. Yeah. So if someone is kind of getting interested listening to this, I mean, where do you start if you want to find out about philosophy for tech? Are there websites, books, communities? Yeah. I mean, you know, 
fundamentally, that, that, so the example I just gave there was all about, was social, right? You know, re- realistically what's going on is a social dynamic that's being uh, exacerbated or at least facilitated by software. So, so you could um, start by just familiarizing yourself with some philosophical concepts, I think. So there's a really great book called, uh, by Leslie Levine called I Think Before I Am, which is just an introduction to a lot of basic philosophical concepts. It's everything from like, you know, ancient Greece, the, the sort of foundations of Western philosophy. And it kind of takes you through this really pleasantly written and easy to understand journey and it, a nice golden thread through to sort of more modern philosophy that was written, maybe in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And it helps you to understand sort of the journey that philosophy is on. Philosophy is sometimes called the history of thought because it helps you to understand like what the prevailing thinking was going on at the time. And I think that's really important because it helps you to reflect on the prevailing thinking that's happening right now. So yeah, um, I would definitely recommend things like uh, Leslie Levine's book just to get you going, because there's a bunch of terms and it can be a bit of a, a jargon-filled field as you know, software engineering is exactly the same to get you started. Then for some of the topics that I just talked about, things like uh, The Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord, Ways of Seeing by John Berger is another. And then, yeah, after, you, after you've read a few of those, the internet is your friend, right? Like There's the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that has every single philosophical concept ever invented, uh, very, very deeply analyzed and very explained, very, very like, well, you know, well-written, easily consumed, that kind of thing. So I would definitely recommend those as a, as a place just to get started. Philosophy can be a little bit steep, much like software engineering. It can be a little bit steep to start with, but very, very rewarding when you start to really engage with it and start to really enjoy it. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that curiosity would probably help help as well? Because there's one example you gave me once is, you know, when people say, oh, I'm an Apple person or I'm an Android person. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about that twice. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that, that, that's a thing. I'm an Android person for now. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Patty. I think you're, you're the Mac one. I, I'm both at the moment. Yeah, I use my iPad for doodling and then I have my phone, which is Android. So yeah, I'm a bit of a, on the fence. <laughs> I'm up to my eyeballs and Apple products at the moment. It's pretty bad. I need to inject some sort of open source stuff into it just to sort of maybe balance the force again. But Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't think to question that on a philosophical level, but then you sort of had a different angle to it, didn't you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's another example, right? So um, the example I gave before is of normal people who aren't making any money off Instagram, making their profiles look as much like these celebrities that are as possible. Why? Because they've internalized the value of of the social value of these, these, these profiles. Um, I always think that when, and it's just exactly the same thing when someone says, I'm an Android person or an Apple person. What they mean when someone says that they're an Android person is that they're more of a fan of open source. They're more of a fan of tinkering with the technology that they've got. They're interested in how it works um, and that kind of thing. And often Apple products is more about the product, right? And the image around the product, as well as it works very cleanly. It's a very sort of clean user interface. It's a sort of stereotypical Apple thing. But they don't, they don't say that, do they? They say, I, I am an Android person, which really is essentially a light, like pegging the colors to the mask of a multi-billion pound company you know, a massive transnational thing, huge, huge international company and arguing with other people who have identified themselves with another multi-billion dollar company, which is a very strange thing to do as an individual. You know, there's this company that doesn't really care about you. You're just a consumer to them. And, you know, they, they might want to make great products for people. And, and, and to, to, but ultimately the end is to make a bunch of money, right? That's the, these companies wouldn't be as wealthy as they were if the primary goal wasn't to make money. Um, and yet people identify themselves as Apple and Android people. Um, rather than people who use Android products or people who use Apple products. And that is an example, in my opinion, of um, fully investing yourself into the spectacle, to use Gita Board's word, that sits 
around a product. You're investing in the spectacle of Apple because the spectacle of Apple is all about, it's a bit more expensive. It's slightly closer to luxury, maybe. It all works. It's all very clean. The logo, the branding, everything, the, even the packaging, you know, the, the cardboard that the phone comes in is thicker and, and heavier. Why? Because it feels good. Open it up. It feels like you're engaging in the spectacle of owning an Apple phone. And, and that's what people do. And it's another really great example of how technology fundamentally shapes how we look at ourselves um, and how we look at others. This actually takes me on to like a, a slightly tangential, but hopefully, hopefully relevant point. The, the way technology works. So for example, if you go on YouTube and you watch a video, someone goes onto YouTube and watches this video, right? And so they, they, they go onto YouTube, the Superpower School podcast. And, see, and, and, and YouTube is tagged in as about tech and about self-improvement and about positive learning and all that kind of thing. Maybe the word philosophy is in there. You know? And then the YouTube algorithm will say, okay, this person likes this kind of content. So I'll go and look for other content with similar tags. There you go. You know, I'll run through a series of incredibly complex heuristic measurements and what you'll get is a bunch of content like that. That's really great for stuff like this because it's like, you know, that, that's a really great experience for the user because now, now information is kind of coming to you. However, if I watch, say, for example, Jordan Peterson video and that gets tagged with political, somewhat philosophical psychology, but also a, a slight political leaning that's associated with, with, with Jordan Peterson, whether you know, he himself would, would agree with that or not. It does have a sort of leaning towards one end of the political spectrum. And you, the YouTube algorithm knows that. And so you get more content like that. And you start getting more content that's from people like Ben Shapiro or I don't know, Malinopoulos or whoever. These people who are generally mouthpieces for this kind of side of the political spectrum. And what, what that does is it creates a kind of echo chamber. The same information is constantly just being sent to you. So you open up YouTube. And you've not searched for anything, you've not looked for it, but there it is right in front of you. And it's the, it's like an engine for what's called a confirmation bias, which is where you go and look for stuff that feel like backs up your argument. So you, you're already a bit uncertain about modern society or, or the way the world's going or, or government policy, blah, blah, blah. You open YouTube, bam, there you go. There's all the confirmation you would ever need right there. You know, and it works the other way as well. If someone watches like a Hassan Piker video and, and, and finds out what, what quote unquote is described as leftist content, you will get more of that kind of quote unquote leftist content. And that may make its own echo chamber of a different sort. So when people were designing the algorithm, they didn't think, wait, we're trying to create a great user experience. So our platform gets loads of action. But what we're doing is making an echo chamber. What are the implications of that? What are the dangers of that? What are we doing to people when they consume all of this similar information in in, in incredibly rapid ways. TikTok is like the distillation of this. That like it's like it's like the difference between beer and vodka, you know? So like with with beer, you have five or six beers, you're cool, you know, you get whatever. But but if you if you vodka, you there's not you have a little bit of vodka before you're really saturated in alcohol, you know? And it's exactly the same thing, the difference between YouTube and TikTok. In TikTok you can you can watch thirty five different videos in a minute. You know, or in a couple of minutes, you can consume a huge amount of content. Uh, I've, I've heard it's that someone described TikTok as the cocaine of social media. Yes. It's like an addiction. You get on there and before you know it, you spend an hour and it's yeah. gone. And the, what that does though, is that, that you're essentially saturating your brain. And the TikTok algorithm is, is more sophisticated than the YouTube algorithm. The, the goal is fundamentally the same. You watch a certain type of content and it will deliver to you more of that content. So you're not mm -hmm. searching for stuff. I'm not searching for, I don't know, super far of a communist material or something, but I watch one video and it will serve it to me. So I am, all I'm doing as a person, as a, as a user, is I'm just scrolling through the, the universe of, of TikTok or whatever, but I'm being delivered specialized content without me being aware of it. Um, and what that does is um, it changes the way you look at other content. 
it makes it the, the further you get into your own echo chamber, the more difficult it becomes to to see other content for what it is, more, slightly more objectively or from a more central position. So me and Vera have spoken about this before. So there's a really great painting. I've written it down. Yeah, Wheat Field with Crows by Van Gogh. So, or Van Gogh, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's essentially just a wheat field, just swirly, very swirly, very classic sort of Van Gogh. Vera, very, I, I described it as kind of swirly. And she was like, is that Van Gogh? I was like, yes, nice. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And you watch this video, you watch this uh, picture and it's, it just looks like a field with crows, right? And it's, it's nothing. And then you turn the page in this book, which is called The Ways of Seeing by John Berger. You, you turn the page and they've added a transcription. And the transcription is, this is the last painting Van Gogh made before he died. And all of a sudden the picture looks different. It looks very, very different. And they described that the reason for that is because before you were just looking at a picture. Now you're looking at an illustration for an idea. And, I, and, and when you read that, because I really, really panic because, oh, I panicked at least, because I realized that once you're in a bit of an echo chamber with YouTube content or TikTok content, you can't look at other content without first contextualizing in the stuff you've already seen. And the further down the little rabbit hole of content that you go, the more difficult it is to see the other content in a, in a slightly more central light. And actually, if, if, if much of the content is conspiratorial or if it's all about how modern life is all decadent and all the rest of it, and then you just go and watch a normal video, your brain will, you will experience that video differently than if you hadn't have watched that content in the first place. These are all massive implications of, of how technology, social media, you know, AI is another great example. All these things are technological decisions made by private companies built and optimized by software engineers, but without much appreciation for the philosophical implications of what it does to people and how people look at each other, how people live their lives, how people think about the world around them. There's a great meme called, um, this is awful, it reject modernity, embrace masculinity. It's, the, it's, it's a video thing. And it's literally like videos of people doing quote unquote modern things. And this is a very small, tiny sliver of society when it's kind of framed as the world. And then it's like, but embrace masculinity. And masculinity is like lifting weights and reading books apparently and stuff. And obviously it's all nonsense. It's just complete, it's crazy. But the, 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 the definition, the juxtaposition of generally, you know, exercising and reading, apparently that's the epitome of masculinity is, is sort of juxtaposed against what is quote unquote modern life, you know? That wouldn't make sense on its own. That wouldn't be any good on its own. But if there's an algorithm that's constantly leading you down the rabbit hole of content, eventually you'll get to that and it's contextualized by all the stuff you've already seen. And all of a sudden it makes loads of sense. So this is why I think philosophy is, is the really, really at the, at the base of why it's so important is because it gives us an appreciation for the things that we're doing to people as, as software engineers um, and the impact that we're having. And also it helps with your critical thinking a little bit as well. Philosophy is great at just helping you pick apart ideas. And sometimes people pose ideas and you can, you can dismantle them. So yeah, that was very, very long winded, but uh, hopefully somewhat useful. Chris, I could listen to you all day. Honestly, I think there's never been an episode where I've just been sitting in the background and just listening because it's amazing the sort of insights that you're delivering here. And it really got me to think about a book that I've been reading as well, which is called Stolen Focus by Yohan Hari. And he talks a lot about how social media is zapping our focus and our energy. And some of those algorithms you talked about there are mentioned in that book as well about how once we start watching something, the way the algorithms are designed is to actually send you more shocking stuff. Yeah. Right. Because our brain likes to be shocked and that's how we get this addiction to watch more and more. A lot of people are getting radicalized because of that 
change in algorithm. Mm. And it's such a deep topic. I think we could do a whole new episode just on this very element. And unfortunately, we're out of time. So yes, apologies. I, I think, no, absolutely. There's nothing to be uh, sorry for because I think you've sparked so much curiosity on this episode that I'm sure Vera and I would love to have a follow-up conversation and really focus in on some of that social media element because I think it is rife at the moment and there is just so much uncertainty about which direction are we going to be going in and that philosophical element as well. So I just want to say from my side, thank you for being so generous with your insights and sharing your knowledge. Vera, last word from you. I just say thank you. I'm definitely going to stop and think sometimes when it comes to some new tech. Just be mm. curious and think about what does this mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was good. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Chris and Paddy. Actually, let's give Chris the last word. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, essentially, um, there's, there's a really great book called A Factfulness by Hans Rosling, which is, I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's, it's an unbelievably optimistic book. And it's, people have sometimes described it as a deprogramming book, actually. So final thought, buy that and read it because it gives you a, a much more optimistic view on the way the direction the world's going. And it gives you a much more objective view as well on the way the world's going, uh, which is, um, which was a really nice way of, of, I read that and then I was like, ah, okay, cool. It actually put me in a really happy headspace and it was deeply, deeply factual and well thought out as well. But thank you very much for having me on the podcast. As you know, I like to talk and yeah, I'd love to have a follow-up episode. I should probably tell I could talk about this all day, but I really enjoy these kinds of settings and these kinds of, um, sort of, there's a, there's a, there's a rough topic and you can kind of go in any direction you want with it, you know? So yeah, thank you very much for having me, Evira and Paddy. Are oh, you welcome?